it's very scary and very risky to leave a great job to go start something on your own. Like most startups fail. So you know, everyone says that. So it was really scary. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Dream Life Podcast. I'm Tiffany Paul. I'm a mom, wife, and entrepreneur, and of course, dreamer. Join me here each week to have conversations about what it means to create the life of your dreams. To me, a dream life is about so much more than just the stuff we have or the things we've accomplished or achieved. It's really about a feeling. It's about creating a life that we love living. And I do think it's possible to enjoy the journey on our way to these big dreams we have for ourselves. Why wait? But I also know it isn't easy. So join me here each week to talk about it. I'll be sharing the ups and the downs of creating a dream life. Get ready to get real, dream big, and feel good. This is the Dream Life Podcast. Lily, thank you so much for being here on the Dream Life Podcast. I have been watching your brand from afar, and I can't wait to dig in a little bit more and learn all about what Hilma's all about and your journey to get here. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Really excited to chat. Yes. And so I know that you kind of have had like a more of an unconventional career path. You started out as an art history major. And now here you are, the founder of Hilma. And there's a a lot happened in between. And I would love to just kick things off hearing a little bit more about your story of where you've been. Totally. Um, So I've always been really passionate about art. I, you know, went to a lot of museums as a kid and, and, and had sort of this early fascination with painting. So as a result, I studied art history in in college. And so like the natural extension of that for me was to work in in the art world. So I um, started out at Christie's, the auction house in New York. I was working in the Impressionist and Modern Art Department, which was sort of a dream for me. You know, it was a wonderful experience, but I just, it just didn't feel totally right in terms of being my full career. I realized that art was more of a passion than um, the space that I wanted to work in. And it also, it, it, something about the commodification of it, I think was off putting to me. It hit the two year mark and I just was left like just a little bit sad because I didn't know I, this thing that I, that had been like the, my dream and the thing that I wanted to do so badly had turned out to not be totally right. And so I just found myself feeling like a little bit disheartened or at least I just I just realized that I I I was sure that I didn't want to keep progressing in that specific field. And so I I really wasn't sure what to do because I felt like okay, I have studied all of this stuff. I've spent, you know, all my internships have been in the art space. I don't have any like skills for for some other, you know, industry or category. But I, I just sort of started talking to people and asking around and like learning about my friends' jobs and even some people at the company actually like hearing about what their friends did or what their siblings even did. And I gathered enough information to be interested in working at like some sort of like magazine or publishing space. Um, so I kind of looked at that space. I had a friend whose older sister worked at Vogue at the time. Um, and I thought she was just like the coolest person ever. <laughs> um, so I talked to her and she actually had an opening on a team that was near her team. She she did all special events and the brand marketing and uh, communications team had a, a, an entry level job opening. 
And I was a little hesitant to even apply because I had been, it was really like a very entry level job. And I had been, you know, working for two years, which isn't, you know, that long, but I, I felt like it was a lateral rather than moving up. But I decided to to do it anyway, because I wanted to try something new. And I ended up getting the job. Were you like super excited, like Vogue? Oh my God, that's like major. Or were you like, I guess I'll <laughs> I guess I'll leave the art industry? I have to be honest and say that like it's you know, I had idolized my friend's older sister and thought she was just like so glamorous and sophisticated. And I was so excited that I would get to work in a place like that um and get to see kind of the inner workings of this, you know, I had read Vogue for so many years and was just really excited to be part of it. You know, it was a wonderful experience. It was a little less glamorous than I thought it would be. I'll just be honest. Like what? Give us some examples. Like, I don't know. I just, I was, you know, an assistant. I was, you know, getting people coffee and, you know, I was, I got to go to the Met Gala, which was like such a cool thing to be well, able to do. Well, that sounds glamorous. <laughs> yeah, no. So it sounds glamorous, but at the actual thing, what I was doing is like running around, you know, some celebrity left her clutch in her car. So I had to like run down the street and get it for her and very lucky to have been able to, to attend such a fun party. But my role at the party was not particularly glamorous. So I was there, but I did learn a lot about how kind of publishing works. I would coordinated very closely with Vogue.com and they were just starting to build out their, you know, digital only strategy, which I found so fascinating. They also did like their first branded partnership on Vogue.com while I was there. And so I, I sort of started to get a sense of like, okay, things are changing. This isn't, people aren't just buying page ads in magazines anymore. They're buying, not only are they buying ads on .com, but they're also buying content and like you know, brands are using content to actually market in a way that they hadn't really before. And digital platforms and social media had really opened all of that up. And it was really interesting to be able to see how that was all kind of starting to happen. And so you were literally there while Vogue was first establishing to go online or was it they were online and they were just kind of now really blowing it up and creating that content that was differentiated from the magazine? Yeah. So they were okay. already online. I'm like when was the internet established? <laughs> no. So they, so they were already online, but they were basically just putting magazine articles online at the time. Got it. it wasn't a differentiated and, strategy. Yeah. And when I first mm-hmm. started, they, they had just started to have a differentiated strategy. When I first started, they had just relaunched the website to be more kind of digitally native and to have additional content. And then over the course of the year that I was there, they started to really invest in, you know, doing like a video fashion shoot, for example, where like everyone's moving in the clothes. And like, that's something that you could really only do digitally that could never happen, obviously, in the magazine, seeing things like that start to happen. And then also seeing the first kind of like branded partnership where I can't, I can't remember. I think it was this Estee Lauder, but I, I don't totally remember. But they created, they co-created branded content on Vogue.com. And that was the first time that they had ever done that at Vogue, which was really interesting. And now, of course, that's like the thing. standard. <laughs> yeah. um, but at the time, it was really new. And it was really interesting to just sort of see how that unfolded. And so from there, I, I knew I wanted to be in kind of like the digital space. And I loved my time at Vogue and and worked with such phenomenal people, but I I wanted to kind of try working at a place that was actually more digitally native. Like Condé Nast is really grounded in magazines. They've 
come a long way in the past, you know, five, 10 years in terms of sort of digitizing everything. But I wanted to work at a place that was like grounded in being like a digital publications. What drew you to that? Because as someone with like an art visual background, it would, I would think that you would kind of want more the fashion, the print, the visuals. So what about the online space was appealing to you? It just, see, it was growing so fast. Like I was, I was only at Vogue for a year. And in that time they went from only repurposing magazine content to having a complete editorial staff doing their own shoots and starting to do branded content. And I could just kind of see, I just got this like sense the of something was happening there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, something was happening there. And it was so fascinating to see. And so I applied for a job at um, a company called Box Media. They're totally digitally native. They have a bunch of different titles. It was really like a foundational experience for me because I was on the brand partnerships team. So I was basically like brainstorming and coming up with ideas for how to translate a brand like Target, for example, like translate their marketing strategy into content. Essentially, like I I think the thing, the reason I ended up leaving was because I was, I felt like I was getting kind of whiplash. Like I was focused, they had so many brands and I was focusing on so many different things. And so it was hard to kind of get into like the headspace of Eater, their, their food and restaurant site, and then switch and be focusing on like SB Nation, which was like their sports focused site. So I, I wanted to continue to be a digitally native publication, but just focusing on one brand. And so that's when I found um, Refinery29, which is where I worked for three years before starting Hilma. And that was like, I felt like I had found home. Like I was like, this is the best of all of these worlds. It's like female focused. It's super mission driven, digitally native. Like they were doing really cool things with video um, and they had an amazing brand partnerships team. So I went and headed up the retail and fashion partnerships over there. Did you start the brand while you were working? Tell me about kind of where Hilma comes into this journey. So my my co-founders are both friends of mine. One is my oldest friend. We met in second grade and like have known each other forever. And she and I were just hanging out one day and I I wasn't feeling well. And I said like, oh, do you have anything? Like, I feel like I'm getting a cold. And she pulled out emergency from her bag. And we just like, I don't know what it is. We looked at the packet of emergency and we were just like, why are we using this product? The branding is terrible. It's full of sugar. It doesn't match with like any of the other products that I have in my life. You know, like I shop at Whole Foods. I always buy organic food. I have, you know, Mrs. Meyers cleaning supplies. I buy, you know, clean label skincare and beauty products and all of that. And I've kind of like been going through this transition of switching over to cleaner natural products as so many people have. So why am I using this emergency packet Um, was kind of like the initial moment. And then we sort of started looking across like the whole medicine cabinet and realizing, you know, okay, I have this expired bottle of Pepto-Bismol in my cabinet and that I only reach for when I'm like really suffering and, you know, all the other OTC products that we all kind of grew up taking And so we just became obsessed with this like opportunity for like a natural option in the same way that, like I said, the Mrs. Myers hand soap, like what's the Mrs. Myers of like the medicine cabinet. And was there anybody at the time, like when you were looking at the market, who else was doing something maybe remotely similar? Obviously you guys are very unique in your approach and your branding, but Mm -hmm. what was the closest that you could find at the time? Yeah. So that's a great question. That was our first step is actually, we were like, this definitely exists. Let's go find a product. <laughs> right. I'm like, right. Want. It has to exist. <laughs> totally. So we, we looked and we were actually really surprised with 
what we found, we, on one end of the spectrum, there was kind of like this natural kind of crunchy herbal space, which I'm sure we're all familiar with. It's like that back aisle in Whole Foods. Yeah. Really confusing, really hard to navigate. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of really great products out there, but they're really Mm -hmm. for someone knows what they're looking for. For sure. And I'm like so busy. I'm like, I don't have time to do all the research to like even navigate that aisle. And so that's why I love what you guys are doing by simplifying it. Yeah. So, so those products are really like focused on ingredients. So you can buy willow bark or magnesium or zinc or turmeric or echinacea. And, but if you're a person who is just looking for, okay, I need a solution for my indigestion, it's very difficult to find something in that aisle unless you do a ton of prior research. Right. And also on top of that, a lot of those brands, you know, in some cases they do say like, you know, stomach soother or something like that. So you can say, okay, maybe I should try that. But the brands themselves don't have a, a level of scientific rigor that I personally felt comfortable taking the product and and trusting that it was going to work and be safe and and all of that. So that was kind of our reaction to that space. Then on the other end of the spectrum, there are, um, you know, OTC products, which is what, you know, we all have in our medicine cabinets. And while those products, you definitely trust them to work. um, If you're trying to be a little bit more discerning about what's on the labels of your products, it's, it can be get a little bit murky. Like there's a lot of, obviously there's drugs in the products, but there's also, dyes, fillers, added sugar, artificial preservatives, um, you know, harmful ingredients like talc, for example. And so we kind of wanted to focus in on like a middle ground of a product that was natural and clean label, but that also felt like it had the same level of scientific rigor as an OTC product. So made by doctors, formulated based on clinical research, and then also actually doing clinical research, which we have done. We've, we created our formulations and then we ran clinical studies on the products themselves. And so, and and also just really formulating the products so that they're solutions oriented. So you can go into the aisle as a person who doesn't have a ton of prior experience with herbs and doesn't know what ingredients they're really looking for, but knows that they want a natural solution to look at the aisle and say, okay, up to stomach relief. Sure. Gas relief tension relief, like immune support, like those things all make sense to me. So natural remedies backed by science is really your point of differentiation. When you guys had the idea, how did Mm -hmm. you go, you know, prove that there was actually a need in the market and that Mm -hmm. other people agreed with you? And did you raise money for this idea? Did you guys self-fund? Like take me back Mm -hmm. to kind of that early stages once you guys were all in. Yeah. So we had the idea. We immediately contact. So we, myself and Nina Mullen, my co-founder, um, had the idea. We immediately contacted Hillary, our third co-founder, because she is a friend of both of ours. Um, and she also has amazing experience in kind of like the better for you consumer product space. She was on board. And so we, we basically spent a year still working at our jobs and just doing research. So we did competitive research, which we've talked about a little bit. Um, we also did consumer research. We interviewed hundreds of people. Um, and we also started building our scientific advisory board. So we kind of, you know, we spoke to every doctor we knew, got as many connections as we had personally. And then we just went on LinkedIn and started looking up different herbalists and holistic health practitioners. Um, just to, at that point, we knew we wanted to have a scientific advisory board, but we really also just wanted to talk about the concept with really educated, informed people who are in the space. Um, because 
you know, they, they know better than us if, if this is even possible. So we, we had a lot of those conversations and we were really excited about the positive response that we got. And many of those people ultimately ended up becoming our scientific advisors. How long between like that one year mark until you actually had like a product that, you know, you believed in, you were ready to launch with? We were re- in like the research phase for a year. We were definitely getting really antsy. The thing that pushed us over the edge to actually quit our jobs and decide to like, okay, we're doing this is getting our scientific advisors on board. So we have an amazing team of, of thought leaders in the space, MDs, PhDs, herbalists, all of whom we kind of like made a list of, of dream candidates when we were starting our research. And many of those people actually are now on the board. So we're very, we were, we were very um, heartened by the response of these experts in the space. And we we're like, okay, they're on board. They trust us. Like they, they believe in this idea. We believe in this idea. Let's, let's go for it. Um, so at that point we did raise a small pre-seed round of funding Friends and family. Friends and family, um, as well as a few strategic founders in the space who we either knew or had worked with. So both of the founders of Away, um, some of the founders of Casper, and one of the founders of Rent the Runway all invested in in Hilma at that early stage. And so then we quit our jobs. Um, And then from that point, from when we quit our jobs and we're like, okay, this is what we're doing full time, um, to when we launched was another uh, year. And so- when you quit your job, did you guys, was there a savings plan to like get you into the point of maybe being able to take money from the company? Did you raise enough that you could take a small salary? Like what did the finances look like? Cause I feel like that's like usually the number one prohibitor of people yeah. leaving their jobs. Yeah. So we had been pretty locked in on wanting to do this full time for about six months. So all of us had had an opportunity to kind of like squirrel away a, a little bit of savings. Um, and we did we, we didn't pay ourselves for the first few months working full time. Um, but then ultimately we did end up given the money that we raised, giving ourselves a small salary because our perspective was essentially like we want to make sure that everyone's comfortable and happy doing this work because we're all working so hard. So so that's that's kind of how we handled it. Yeah, that makes sense. Because when you're stressed about money, that's like, you know, that really takes away from your enjoyment and your creativity and your problem solving. Because it's like you're adding a whole other like layer of stress on top of the fact that you're building an entire business. So <laughs> that's why I asked that because it's like it's so important to, you know, make sure you have that financial plan set and it, it looks differently for everybody. So thanks for okay. sharing. Of course. Um, so, so yeah, so then we, we quit our jobs and then we were full time, um, and just like so excited to get the product into market. We, what was the first product that you launched with? So we actually launched with three products, which we call like the, the essentials. It was our immune support, which is essentially like a one-to-one emergency. It's like the cleaner version of the, the product I mentioned earlier that was our (laughs) aha moment. Um, then tension relief, which is for occasional tension headaches. Um, and upset stomach relief, which is for acid indigestion. So it was really like cross category brand that you can turn to um, for an effective alternative to something you might find in the OTC aisle. And so, how did you get the word out? Yeah, so we um, we had a great launch. We were really excited. We did a lot of influencer marketing. Um, we essentially what we did is we identified a lot of health authorities who had. A, you know, small but engaged followings in the wellness space. 
sent them products. We were like, Hey, I mean, I just, you know, personally made a list of them, emailed all of them being like, Hey, I'm Lily. I'm a founder of this new brand. Would love to send you products to try. We're launching in January. Like such a fan of yours. Let me know what you think. And I was really pleasantly surprised with how many people were excited and interested. Um, and, wanted to try out the products. And then we had all of those people posting around our launch, which gave us like kind of this buzzy moment. And in addition to that, we we did these things called office that I called office takeovers because we figured like the place where there's always like the old crusty box of emergency is in the office. So we um, dressed up in like our, our little Hilma lab coats and we went in with our new, with, with our products and we kind of explained to everyone what, Hilma was and that we were there to, you know, clean out their office medicine cabinet, stocked them with the products. And that was really fun um, activation. We went into Glossier and the wing and farmer's dog and the scam and all these kind of fun offices in New York with sort of like-minded employees. And that was great. And we would have loved to continue it. But then COVID hit. We were also doing a lot of partnerships with different yoga studios and fitness centers where we would kind of do a little pop-up and have the products there. Um, So I would say like the biggest stress from a marketing perspective with COVID was just we had really planned a lot of kind of IRL activations that then were no longer possible. So it, it begs the question of like, how do you how do you get the product in front of people? How do you get people excited? And so that was kind of our challenge to solve in the first couple of months of being live. And the way that we really were able to tackle that is through just doubling down on the on the health authorities and, and influencers who we brought into our community and created like an ambassador program. And we learned really quickly that, you know, a personal recommendation from a credible source in the space is worth is so much more effective than a Facebook ad, for example. Totally. Um, and so we've really leaned hard into that strategy and and have seen it be really successful. Yeah, and here it slept. We're it's the same thing. Like we launched February 2020. So yeah. oh my same, gosh. Yeah. So same thing where we were like, okay, we have to be super smart with and strategic with our, you know, dollars yeah. and our time and investment. So it's like we did um, you know, follow up with micro influencers as well as our strategy yeah. for the year because it was just like I wasn't willing to to waste the money on the digital uh, marketing where it's like and when you're a brand new brand, it, that's not gonna they need to probably see that brand ten times. They don't oh. know about you. So working with this, you know, these micro influencers. I, I don't know if you worked with micro influencers. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned with smaller followings. It's like mm-hmm. they have these trusted communities versus an ad that pops up on your feed from a brand you've never heard of. Um, you know, I I just wanted say I also have found that to be like very successful for us as well and so when you talked about to like your activations in office and I just also want to go back to like you know you had some you know friends who were you know connected at Vogue Mm -hmm. you have you know some founders who have invested in your brand Mm -hmm. you're obviously very connected and community you built and the network you've built along the way has obviously served you which is really a key to success, right? You, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm-hmm. So tell me about how you built like this, this strong network. Is it because you spent so many years in New York? Is it because you got that first job at Vogue? Like, tell yeah. me about this network that you know you built. Yeah, that's a great question. I think like, I think it's interesting having three co-founders just expands your network so mm, much yep. because each of us has had our own 
unique career trajectory um, and as a result has built a, a networking community of people who are focused on like different things, for example. Like I have great connections in the publishing space at Vogue and at Refinery29 because, you know, I worked at the both of those places um, and, you know, maintained relationships with those people. So that's kind of like what I bring to the table in, in sort of like the PR brand partnerships kind of space. But then my co-founders have both had great experience working at DTC consumer startups. So they know a lot of other founders in that space. They know, you know, great resources for product development and um, operations and and all of that, um, as well as just strategic founders who have done it before, who can give you advice on, hey, like, don't spend that much money making your website. You're going to learn so much in the first six months and you're going to want to change the entire thing. So make sure you do like an MVP um, things like that. So I think it's really a mix of, um, my personal connections and my personal network, which just has happened organically through my career and, and my, um, I guess living in New York is, is definitely true. That's part of it. Um, but also just the, the power of three and yeah, and no, I love that. Even when you said that, I just like visualized like, just like these three, like what, like three nets being cast versus yeah. like a single net being cast. And when yeah. you all have your unique backgrounds that like widens your, your reach as well. And like, it just stands out to me in particular, because I spent 10 years at Procter and Gamble, which is like yeah. consumer goods. So it's like, mm-hmm. when I want to go to a startup space, I'm like, hello, can anybody help me? They're like, I don't know. I still tied and yeah. all the retailers answer my phone whenever I call them. And like, you know, we're an established, you know, brand that's been around forever. So totally. it took me forever to try to figure out like where totally. to start, totally. what to do. Wasted a lot of money, a lot of time on, mm-hmm. cause I had a business before this one for oh, seven cool. years. So it was like, you know, I like hearing about the power of that community, which I understand now as my community expands, it really totally. does help, you know, save you time and money. And it's like, we talk about all these investments in marketing and all this, but it's like invest in building that community. It is so important. And so tell me about maybe a time where maybe you guys had a huge setback or an obstacle mm. or you were very stressed or something. And how did you overcome that? Was it with the help of somebody else? Was it you guys coming together? I want to hear about a struggle or an obstacle in this journey. Um, so in terms of like hurdles that we went through, I think the first one that was really tough was actually making the decision to quit our jobs because yeah. each of us had varying levels of comfort with that idea. Um, and it took each of us like different length of time to totally get on board. And so that was really hard because, you know, you don't want to push anyone to do something that's going to make them uncomfortable. You don't want to do something that's going to make you uncomfortable. It's very scary and very risky to leave a great job to go start something on your own. Like most startups fail. So, you know, everyone says that. So it was really scary. Isn't it um, funny how most startups fail? But then like you're like in your mind when you leave the job, you're like, oh, well, I'm not gonna fail. Yeah. <laughs> like that's what I think is also funny. I've like had that realization re- totally. lately. Where it's, it's like, like that. isn't it funny where we kind of know, but we're always like, but I'm the exception, right? Totally. What well, it's called like <laughs> cognitive dissonance, right? You're yeah. like, you just do not right. So you have to like that. live in the one area, but then you like jump out and then all of a sudden you're like, well, maybe what if I fail? <laughs> Yeah, totally. <laughs> Have you had that so, moment yet where you're like, oh my God, am I, are we going to make it or is this going to work? Or Totally. I think like the biggest hurdle that I've had personally is just such imposter syndrome and like really not having 
really having to like work to get the confidence to be good at my job. Um, I think like it's really scary. It, I've always worked in organizations where I have a direct boss who's consistently giving me feedback, who's saying like, here's what you should do. And here's how like, you know, I, as I became more and more senior, I had my own kind of freedom to drive strategy, but I still had a boss who was saying like, good job at the end of the day, or like, here are what your goals are. And so to be the one who had to, number one, like define what that was, and then also not really have anyone to give me feedback was really hard. It was so unexpected to me that that was going to be so difficult. But I learned about myself that I really need feedback. And I really need like, even my co-founders to be like, hey, that was great. Or hey, that, you know, I think that we could do a better job on this part of the strategy or like, I need that feedback in order to be productive, honestly. Um, so that was that was one for me personally. And also just getting gaining confidence. Like I think everyone talks about imposter syndrome, but I really struggled with, you know, both my co-founders went to Harvard Business School and I look up to and respect both of them so much. And I always felt like, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm like the weak link of this trio. Maybe I need to like, you know, I want to make sure that I don't let them down. And all of that was really hard to work through, um, in the first year of, of working together, but you know, they're so supportive and great. And, and ultimately I've, I've gotten past that. Um, I'm happy to say, yeah, I think that to me was the biggest surprise too. It's like the moment I took that leap, all of a sudden you lose that. It's external validation at, yeah. at its core. That's what it is. Exactly. You're used to being like, my I get reviews, I get mm-hmm. raises, I get promotions. Yep. And you're like, exactly. I, I am enough. They are telling me I'm enough. Exactly. I have the title. I'm doing a good job. And then to go into like this like lion's den of <laughs> being an entrepreneur, you're like, is this going to work? Am I doing a good job? Am I making the right moves? Because also there is no one path. You can talk to a million founders and get Mm -hmm. different ideas from different business, but like you really are on your own journey. I always say it's like starting your own business is the quickest way to like go to war with yourself. But then it's like, once you (laughs) overcome that, it's amazing. (laughs) So I hear you. I understand that. Totally. I, that's a really great way to put it. I think it's, it's like, every insecurity you've ever had just like rises to the surface. Everything. Um, And I'm like, I'm like getting used as I talk about it because I'm just like, it's like every insecurity, every childhood wound, every trauma, everything. It's like, it'll show up in weird ways because you're so vulnerable and putting yourself out there. Totally. You're totally right. It's funny you say that. I I, my therapist, as I was kind of like going through this decision process, she was like, you know, I think this might be really hard for you. And I was like, no, I'm so excited to strike it on my own and be my own boss. And like, I'm so passionate about this idea and my friend doing this with my friends. And then like, it came full circle and she was like, <laughs> told you. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it is good to have a therapist on yeah, speed oh, dial. Yeah. I always say like, if something comes up for you, it's either meant to be healed mm-hmm. or to teach you something. So mm-hmm. it's like, if it's coming up for you, it's like, what is, what needs to be healed mm-hmm. or what is that teaching you about, mm-hmm. you know, the situation or yourself? So is there something that you've learned more about yourself through this experience of kind of taking the leap? Yeah, I think I learned that I really do need that external validation. Like, and I think like for better or worse, it's something that I need. And so actually being able to recognize that that's what was going on and articulate it. And then actually say to my co-founders, like, 
I like, I need feedback from you guys. I need to hear when I've done a great job. I need to hear when I've done a bad job. We need to be more open about this and, and, and et cetera. Um, and that has actually really helped because now we talk and I think it goes both ways because they kind of felt the same way, but it enables you to kind of put a structure in place. That's going to give you what you need in order to be good at your job. Yeah. Until you know what the issue is, you can't go to exactly solving exactly. it. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And I also think just like, you know, it, it it's, it's, it's painful, but it just takes time. Like it takes time to build confidence. You have to kind of, you know, we, I was so stressed until we actually launched the brand. And then I was like, oh, this thing that I've been working on is like really out in the world. And there are people who are really buying it. And then, you know, we launch a new product and the marketing campaign goes well. And it's like, these things just kind of slowly build your confidence over time because you realize like, you know, the only the only person doing this is like the three of us. So we're totally. really, we, it's nice because you can really feel um, ownership of accomplishments and that really helps to build confidence. But I, I will definitely say that I still feel very insecure many times every week, every day. Um, but I've, I've come a long way. It's like, ultimately we are humans and we do want to hear that we are enough. And that can come in the form of our founders, from our family, mm -hmm. from our business. And I think too, it's that first, like those first couple of years, like when you were like doing the market research, launching mm -hmm. the business where you haven't had the validation of the customer too, because I feel like exactly. once my product started selling, once I got, we just got into Vogue and oh, we just congrats. got our first retail partner lined up and now you're, then you can take a breath. You're like, yeah. Okay, like the press has validated me, the mm -hmm. retailers have validated me, the customers validating me. I feel like that kind of takes the pressure off me personally. So yeah. I know you guys have had a lot of really great success in, in PR and, you know, you're mm -hmm. moving into retail now. Yeah. So yeah. tell me about this. Yeah. So we, um, we've had a really amazing first year in the world. Um, we launched on DTC. But we have always known that the long-term success of the business will be in mass retail because it's a very reactive category. Like if you think about like when you have a stomachache, you're going to run into, you know, your local target and grab whatever product off the shelf. You're not going to really sit and wait for it to arrive. And yeah. order online <laughs> I have a stomachache. Let me order something. Exactly. So there's, there's an urgency and immediacy about the products that um, – we feel has always been really important to to live in in mass retail. So um, we're very excited to announce that we're going to be launching in Target. Amazing! Yes, we're excited because they are obviously everyone's favorite brand, um, but also they have really been thought leaders in kind of like the clean and natural space. They've really invested in bringing DTC brands to retail, um, particularly you know brands like. Cora and Megababe that are that are focused on clean labels and and you know like a better standard for personal care products. So we're very excited to be entering the the OTC aisles of Target. Congratulations. What a huge Thank milestone you. to hit just after year one. Yes. But yes. I know that getting into Target isn't all like rainbows and butterflies, <laughs> logistics wise and funding yeah. wise and all of that. Do you want to share a little bit behind the scenes of like, first off, how did you get into Target? And then sure. secondly, when it was a go, like, was there more money you needed to raise? Was there, you know, the logistics you needed to figure out? Because that's a huge retailer. Totally. Yeah. So we um, to answer your first question, we like basically three years ago when we first had this idea, we were like, it's got to be on the shelves of Target. <laughs> yeah. So like the idea of being in Target started 
way, way before even we even manifesting knew this. what Hilton was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it has been really like this, this, um, target light <laughs> of, yeah, yeah, this target, exactly. <laughs> this guiding light of, of where we wanted the brand to go. Um, and so as a result, once we had a brand together, once we had products, we immediately started kind of feeling out our networks, like trying to understand how does a brand launch in target? Like, how does this happen? How have our, our peer brands like Cora, for example, like, how do they do this? Um, and we ended up working with an amazing broker that kind of helped us get the meetings and talk to the right people, et cetera. Um, and we, we actually started talking to them well before we even launched the brand. Is it a, like a specific broker that works with like OTC? Like, how did you find this broker and do brokers work by different categories? So they work uh, by retailer. So it was a Target-specific broker. Okay, got it. Um, they have an amazing experience um, with brands in our category. Um, and they really, and that's really the only way, Target only works with brokers. So you can't just as a random brand, like call the buyer at Target and get a meeting. They're very busy. And as I'm sure you can imagine, like every brand wants to be at Target. So how did you find this broker? Like if someone's listening, they're like, I want my product on Target shelves. Like how do I find this broker? Through our connections. So we we talked to a bunch of different brokers and then ultimately decided on one that we felt most comfortable with. They were really passionate about our brand and they were excited about, you know, pre, even pre-launch, they were excited about what we were building. So that's why we decided to work with them. They and we were lucky enough that the buyer at Target had actually heard of us before we launched because we one part of our strategy was we just put up an Instagram page and started like posting and sharing about like something new is coming. Um, And that had, I guess, piqued someone's interest over at Target. So they were familiar with us, um, which is actually a credit to them because I think they're really, really well versed in the space. They're always looking for new brands to bring to their customers. And that's part of why Everyone loves Target so much. Um, yeah, you walk so we, in, they, t- they tell you what you need. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> we and the research right. for you. Exactly. <laughs> they're right. Yep. We started working very early to get in front of them. We had a bunch of different pitch meetings, um, and ultimately they decided to buy the products. So we um, we had raised – so I mentioned we raised a pre-seed round like right before we decided to quit our jobs. We also then raised a seed round that summer. Um, with the intention of like funding many things, but one of which being um, retail expansion. So we were able to kind of hit the r- ground running right when we got the order. Um, and we're, I'm, we're also really fortunate that Nina, one of my co-founders, worked at Harry's when they launched a Target. So she had the experience of, you know, operationally what that means um, and she was able to run the process very seamlessly. <laughs> well, that is amazing. Congratulations again. Like what a huge accomplishment. And what did that feel like when you when you heard the news? Honestly, it's been such a dream of ours that it, it it's funny. Actually, we were on a call with some of our investors when we got the email and um, just we couldn't keep it together. Like we all were like, <laughs> so excited. Some of us were crying. Like it was, it was a big moment. Yeah. It sounds like a dream. Yeah. And so on that note, I end all of my conversations asking my guests to define their dream life. So what does living the dream look like for you? It's such a hard question. I think like fundamentally, it's just not having to 
answer to anyone necessarily and really like being able to make my own choices and make my own way and find things that inspire and excite me and have the freedom and ability to pursue them. Something that I I have certainly not mastered, but just being like being grateful for for everything that I have and and having and not constantly feeling like, oh, hey, I have to get to the next thing. I have to get to the next thing. I have to get to the next thing. I think that's something that I've just personally been working on and, um, you know, have, like I said, have not mastered, but I think it is to your point, the dream yeah. is to be able to just be really grateful for for everything that I have because I am very lucky. Yeah. Well, I hope we take a few moments or or weeks or whatever to celebrate this huge win that you just oh, had and really you. live in the gratitude of that and the joy and the accomplishment. You should definitely soak that all up. Don't want to the next thing. Yes. Just in target and look at the products. Exactly. Soak it all in, girl. Well, thank yeah. you so much for having or thank you so much for, for joining me. And I've yes. loved learning more about the Hilma journey and I cannot wait to get my hands on some product. Yes, I know. I'll send you some um, yes, as a follow-up, send me your address. But thank you so much for having me. It yes. was lovely chatting with you. Definitely. Thanks, girl. Hey, friend. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you're enjoying it so far, could you do me a quick favor and write a review? Even if you're like the type of person that never writes reviews, it'll take like just one minute. Reviews really help out a new podcast like mine get visibility. And plus, I want to hear what you think. In fact, if you screenshot your review and DM it to me on Instagram at Dream Life Podcast, I will give you a $10 credit towards my online sleep shop, thesleplife.com. And you can pick out something amazing to add to your bedtime routine as my way of saying thank you. So please write a review. Make sure you're subscribed so that you are notified each and every time a new episode drops. And don't forget, keep on dreaming big. You got this.